Oh, Dave. Dave. <laughs> Why do you have to be mean, Dave? That's <laughs> who I am. What do you want from me? <laughs> I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me. Listen to you, but what right? Because I have a right to be. And I have a voice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. This is very no, strange. I have not had this person on for a long time on an older episode. But Mike from War Machine vs. Warhorse, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for giving me all the great new releases of 2016. <laughs> I had to force my way into something that I know is good. Yeah, that's right. I'm trying to remember the last time you were actually on a regular episode. I mean, you've been on a lot, but it's been a while. Like Pain and Gain, Pulp Fiction. Oh, your number one episode of all time. That's right, Pain, Pain and, Gain. and Gain. That's it. That's, <laughs> I don't know what that says about my listenership. <laughs> that they believe in fitness, Dave. That's right. I believe in fitness. And they believe in something I do not. So that's, that's good. <laughs> but yeah, welcome back. I'm glad, I'm glad to have you back on the show. I had to come back for uh, a Casey Affleck joint. I mean, how? who else are you going to go with? My, my love for him. I've got posters all over my bedroom ceiling of Casey Affleck in different various poses. So, yeah, this and uh, Manchester by the Sea is my most anticipated film of 2016. So I, I'm ready to talk about the, the greatest Affleck. So before um, before we jump into the movie, you are the host of many other podcasts at this point, at least two other podcasts. What's coming up for you? What do you want people to listen to? Uh, for War Machine versus War Horse, uh, I really don't know what will be coming up around this time period. Uh, I think we're going to look at a VOD and limited release called Peter and the Farm uh, next week, as opposed to Doctor Strange. <laughs> that was a no-brainer. Just fighting uh, against those numbers, huh? Just no thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Uh, but since it's about an alcoholic and extremely unlikable farmer who hates his family and has no friends, I, I figure that it's like you if you like, like the outdoors. That's, that's well, there's just a, there's just a wealth of films that I could just I could just dive into. So I haven't really decided what the the older pairing is going to be. Um, as far as original remake, I am going to bow out of the Doctor Strange week. <laughs> Uh, because I hate uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. The only thing I would want to talk about was Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Oh, and unfortunately, one. that original series is like an 18-hour miniseries from BBC. And uh, I don't have time for that. I got to talk Casey Affleck. Hey, I got to look at him. Much wall. more important, yes. So instead, my co-host on that show, Peter, will be talking with a guest about uh, the last time Benedict Cumberbatch, I guess. And maybe the only time was in a in a geek remake with uh, Star Trek Into Darkness and Wrath of Khan. So that's... Yeah. I can see that. We will not be celebrating Marvel, but we will be giving the geeks, I guess, what they want, which is not me. Not me on the show. Spoilers (laughs) for Star Trek Into Darkness. J.J. Abrams would be so upset with you, Mike. (laughs) He fought hard to keep that a secret. How dare you? (laughs) Alice Eve is cool. (laughs) Good point. All right. So before um, I jump into the psychology, do you have a couple movie recommendations based on Gone Baby Gone or Place Identity for us? I did have a couple. I mean, I think the easiest one for this would be The Town, which mm-hmm. you've already covered on your show, and it would be uh, another Ben Affleck film, and it's in around Boston, and I guess it would be from the criminal side of things as opposed to seeing it from the, the law side, although Gone Baby Gone kind of blurs that line between mm-hmm. the criminals and the law enforcement officers. <laughs> yeah. 
but I uh, I had a couple. One is uh, a romance. It's one of my uh, favorite uh, films, uh, starring the new girl Zoe Deschanel, which uh, just troubles me beyond end. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, the other one is a Canadian film uh, about about dead kids. So oh. guess which one I went with. <laughs> I was, I was debating. Oh, Canada. <laughs> See, I ended up deciding on uh, The Sweet Hereafter, which uh, deals with a, a tragedy. There's n- not really a mystery to it. Uh, it does involve sort of investigating the events of this bus crash, uh, but it's mainly about the effect that has on this small town and the parents that have lost their children or the children who were injured uh, in the crash. And it's a little scene from, film from 1997. I think it was you know critically praised back then, but... You know, anything Canadian, we Americans just ignore it. So, uh, yeah, the sweet hereafter, if you can, if you can find it, it stars uh, uh, the great Bilbo Baggins, uh, Ian Holt. <laughs> oh, it <laughs> might break out I the geek card. I end up talking shit about things that I love. I end up like, let's go ahead and make fun of it, <laughs> even though I like it. All yeah. right. Uh, that that film made uh, three point three million in the states, so Ooh. huge cultural impact. This <laughs> yeah, <week laughs> monstrous. <laughs> All right, yeah, those couple good recommendations. Sweet Hereafter is one of those I have been meaning to see, so that is a good reminder for me. All right, uh, so we're going to take a little break, and then I'll talk about place identity, and then we'll haul Mike back in here to talk about uh, really to talk about Casey Affleck, but I guess to talk about Gone Baby Gone. Most people know Stanley Kubrick as one of the greatest filmmakers of our time. But did you know that later in his career, he was so embarrassed by his first and lowest rated film, Fear and Desire, that he tried to stop it from being seen by the public? Hi, I'm Nate Jones. And I'm Austin Gold. And together we co-host the Best and Worst of the Best podcast, a show where we pit a great director's highest and lowest rated films on IMDb against each other to see what exactly went right and what went oh Oh, so wrong. wrong. We've already covered directors like Stanley Kubrick, the Coen brothers, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, and many more. Check us out at bwbpod.com and let us know what great director you think had the biggest blunder. Okay, so uh, it's time for the psychology section. So we're talking about place identity today. So place identity is also known as place-based identity, and it's basically this group of ideas about place and identity in many fields like geography, urban planning, urban design, architecture, eco-criticism, and of course, environmental psychology. Now, basically what it's about is the meaning and significance of places for their inhabitants and users and how these meanings can contribute to those people's conceptualizations of their self. So it's also related to something called place attachment and sense of place, which we'll talk about in a moment. So as far as how to understand place identity, it usually involves these qualitative techniques like qualitative, of course, is more story based. Quantitative is numbers based. Right. So like interviews, participant observation, discourse analysis, and even mapping a range of physical elements. So some urban planners uh, use forms of, of planning and design with local communities as a way of working with the place identity to transform existing places as well as create new ones that feel familiar and feel similar and feel like home. So this kind of planning is sometimes referred to as placemaking. It's sometimes also called urban character, neighborhood character, or local character, and we see plenty of that in Gone Baby Gone. 
It's become really significant in the last 25 years, specifically in urban planning and design. And this is just one of the ways that psychology is connected to everything in our world. Like the way we, the way we operate is all connected to different levels of psychology. It's also been related to this worldwide movement to protect places with heritage significance. Uh, they, they have these concerns rising about the loss of individuality and distinctiveness between different places as an effect of cultural globalization. There was actually a really interesting episode of another podcast called 99% Invisible that talked about McMansions and how dangerous that is as far as place because they kind of look the same wherever you go. And architecture usually for for centuries has looked different. Like you, you, you could know where you are in the world by the way buildings were built. And so if you start designing places that look like everywhere else, you lose that sense of individuality of the place. So briefly, I mentioned something called place attachment. So place attachment is this emotional bond between person and place. It's highly influenced by the individual and their experiences. So not everyone in the same place, in the same city, or even the same neighborhood in Boston, like like in Gone Baby Gone, is going to have the same attachment. There's actually been a lot of research dedicated to defining what makes a, a certain place meaningful enough for this attachment to occur. Uh, one, one researcher named Schroeder uh, discuss the difference between meaning and preference, defining meaning as kind of the thoughts and feelings evoked by a place and preference as liking that place. So you can have an attachment to a place you don't even really like. So place attachment has a bunch of dimensions and it can't be explained just through a cause and effect. It's not like you were raised there, so you have an attachment. Not necessarily. It depends on this reciprocal relationship between your experiences and the behavior of the place. So, of course, there's lots of different opinions on the definition and components of place attachment. Um, so lots of these models have been really scarce until recent years. One really notable framework is called the tripartite model. Um, this was developed by Scanelli and Gifford, and it defines these variables of place attachment as the, quote, three Ps, person, process, place. So the process is the real, I think, the thing that makes a place get set apart. But very little is known about but very little is known about the neurological changes that can make place attachment possible uh, because we have this, this intense focus on social aspects by environmental psychologists. So, And it's also really difficult to measure place attachment over time unless you convince people to, uh, to keep coming back for these interviews, which can be very difficult. So I mentioned the tripartite model. So let's go over that really quickly. So person, it's just answering the question, who is attached? Right. When examined individually, places will gain meaning because of personal experiences, life milestones, and occurrences of personal growth. The process answers the question, how does the attachment exist? So similar to lots of other things in social psychology, this relies on the collective effects of cognition, behavior, and, and how, things, uh, how things affect you emotionally. So the most common emotions associated with people place bonding are positive, like happiness and love. And there's even a term for a love uh, that people feel for particular places called topophilia. Negative emotions are also capable of giving places significant. However, negative emotions are usually not associated with people place bonding since place attachment represents it, this, this yearning to replicate these positive experiences and emotions. But it can, and I think we do see that in Gone Baby Gone. So the cognition, of course, is, incorporates all the knowledge and memories of meanings, uh, memories and meanings to kind of attach the person to the place. And then behavior is this physical manifestation of place attachment. And there are things called proximity maintaining behaviors. 
Um, so this is really common uh, among people who have an attachment, a place. They will change their behavior so they're closer to that place that they're attached to. Uh, and the third P, of course, is the place, like what what is attached. And it can be applied to anywhere, any geographic, any geographic type. So it, it relies on both physical and social aspects. So the social is that it, it occurs due to the social relationships that exist within our significant place rather than the physical char- characteristics of the place itself. So the place can be hideous. The place can be not pleasing to the eye, but these, these social connections really bond us to it. And then there's the physical. Natural and built environments can be uh, both be subjects of person-place bonds. So – this can lead to the development of something called place dependence. Uh, place dependence negatively correlates with environmental press, which can be defined as the demands and stresses that an environment puts on people physically, interpersonally, or socially. So the less stress you get from the place, the more dependent and more happy with the place you'll be. So as far as the research, um, so when we look at predictors of attachment, uh, individualism, how individual a person is, is the main influencer of place attachment. But there's a desire among researchers to create a list of these concrete variables that, that can account for the extents of place attachment among individuals. At the forefront of these maybe variables is, is time dependence. Uh, and it's a belief that the increased length of residence in a location, the longer you're there, the more attached you will be to that location. So over these extended periods of time, place identity can develop. And then as far as measuring attachment, uh, they use uh, most likely the most often they use psychometric and Likert scales. Likert scales are kind of like, how much do you enjoy this thing? One being not at all, five being it's my favorite thing, and then two, three, and four being uh, obviously in the middle. Um, this is what they usually use for different dimensions of place attachment, like belongingness and identity. And usually there's about 12 categories. There's the aesthetics, how it looks, uh, the heritage, family connection, recreation, therapeutic, biological diversity, wilderness, home, intrinsic, spiritual, economic, life-sustaining, learning, and future. So this is what they usually are measuring. And then they want to look at memory association as well. So memories combine both sensations and perceptions. So you have the feelings and you have the cognitive. And they create images that can be used to recall past experiences. Over time, these memories will allow an individual to develop these feelings of familiarity that comprise this kind of sense of place. The plasticity of these memories means that the place identities can change. It's not going to stay the same. These memories of places and preferences can change over time. Adults will focus on the emotions, meanings, and implications of feelings in association with places, whereas kids will focus on the physical aspects of environments. And, and this makes perfect sense to me because as we get older, our, our brains get more complex and work better than when we were, ch- when we were children. So we can take in all this context as for a kid, home is home. Home is my house. Home is where I live. They're not taking in everything else that, that goes along with it. And it's, of course, as I kind of mentioned earlier, it's been used in many different areas. It's been used in something called disaster psychology, um, where when when places are destroyed by disasters, what an effect that has and how you can improve your situation by reconstructing that space. Like a lot of people, when their homes are destroyed by natural disasters, they will go back, stay in the same place, and they will build the exact same house. And that really, I think, solidifies how important place identity is. And then if you look at like space planning, um, if you understand the psychological factors about place attachment, it can be important uh, to use this 
um, to build places that people will be loyal to. And this allows cities to flourish. And they've also looked at place identity as far as senior communities. So we talked about environmental press earlier. It's often considered really with elderly populations uh, moving into assisted living or senior communities because it's so different from where they've been. So improving the overall psychology of the community and this sense of community overall allows place attachment to develop for these individuals in these groups. So even though they're in a new place, they can have a new place attachment. But developing new place attachment gets more difficult as we get older. So as a result of this, recently transitioned senior adults are really popular subjects for research. Um, So this is kind of where we go next, is not only understanding why place identity happens and why it's important and what effect it has, but how do we recreate it for people who are displaced, whether you're talking about elderly people, whether you're talking about refugee communities, any of those areas. So, So although place identity just seems like common sense, I think there's a lot that goes into it and there's a lot of context that kind of intersect and make a difference in how we see uh, where we're from. You know, it's it's one of those things like for me, I the most the furthest I've moved away from the house I was born in is about eight miles. Like and I I have a really difficult time imagining myself living in a different place. Like is the Bay Area perfect? Is California perfect? No, absolutely not. There's a lot of things I would change. There's a lot of things that aren't quite right. But it is my home. It's where I see myself. Even if I were to move away for a while, I see myself coming back here later in life and and kind of. Uh, ending my career and, you know, going into old age in this area. And sometimes that's really hard to get rid of, especially if you've had like a decent uh, to happy childhood. It really does stick with you. All right. So that's it for the psychological section. Uh, We will take a break and then bring Michael Denniston back in to talk about Gone Baby Gone. Watched the movie. Check. Popped the popcorn. Check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home. Check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. <laughs> Didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. Uh, what's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists, and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new, or possibly old, breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. I just realized that I didn't... uh... I didn't even drop the name of the romance. I was like, I was playing my own little game with the audience. As far as like, you have to figure it out yourself. I only reveal my final answer. <laughs> so, what was the romance? Um, it's it's one I covered with. Uh, God, what was the name of that podcast? They let me talk about it for two hours, but I can't <laughs> Jesus <even> remember. Christ. <laughs> two hours. Yeah, all the real girls is the name of it. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, Paul Schneider. yeah. Uh, one of my favorites. Uh, also. Had no real cultural impact, I don't think. Just like a little indie hit. Right, that's your that's your niche. It's things that no one gives a shit about. That's there <laughs> it I is. Do, God damn it! <laughs> and the stuff that I'm covering on my podcast, I bow out of Star <laughs> Trek. <laughs> fuck it. Nope, not touching it. <laughs> Doctor Strange, not interested. <laughs> 
All right, so we're back now to talk about Gone Baby Gone. So, of course, we always like to talk about kind of our history with these movies. And this is a yet another movie that I have Mike to thank for, because uh, this is another one that I missed. And I told Mike that I hadn't seen it, and he about had a fucking heart attack and could not deal with that fact. It was like, what? What do you mean? You ha- Go watch it right now. Hey, you watched Argo? You watched Argo and you didn't? Today. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> like, you watched Argo and you didn't see this? What the fuck is wrong with you? Uh, true. Yeah, and uh, and Mike was right uh, because I watched this and immediately kind of fell in love with it. Like I've watched it, I first watched it this year, and I think I've watched it three or four times since then. Like I just, I, I think it's Ben Affleck's best work, and I don't think it's close. I think this is way beyond. I mean, certainly way beyond Argo. I think the the town is is something that's uh, comparable to this, but I enjoy this movie more. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. But what what is your history with Gone Baby Gone? I missed it theatrically too. Uh, it was, I guess, a time in my life where I I was not going to the movies a lot for some reason, which I, I don't. You know were going four or five times a week. Like, no, what the hell fuck's wrong with you, <laughs> Jesus? And as, you know, this was a film that I wanted to see, um, but I just didn't get around to it. And it was uh, I talked extensively about my mother on uh, the Pulp Fiction episode we did on your show. As you should. Uh, this is one that she uh, she was really uh, enthused about. It was like her favorite film that year, and she hmm. got it for me, the DVD for Christmas, and was like, you have to watch this. And then I think I didn't What a weird her. movie for a mother to give their child. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Don't yeah, think about not... the subtext of this gift. Just watch the movie. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, stolen childhood, <laughs> all of that. Here you go. <laughs> and with with your family tree, I mean, what is she trying to tell you, Mike? Like, <laughs> where did all know. these kids come from? I don't know. They just showed up one day. I maybe that I'm I'm the lost Affleck brother. I don't know. Maybe that's what Perfect. she was attempting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then she ended up getting really mad at me because I I did text her back as soon as I watched it. Uh, There's a running theme with you and your mom in movies. <laughs> like, Pulp Fiction, you didn't like it enough. <laughs> she was angry. Well, that wasn't the problem this time. I, I liked it just as much as she did. Uh, but the problem was, it was, you know, like it was a Christmas gift or something. And I didn't text her back my thoughts until six months later because I didn't bother to open it until <laughs> and like put it in. <laughs> Real <Whoops>. appreciative. <laughs> you were just savoring the moment. I just, yes. I want this to be special, mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, if she's listening, uh, still appreciate that gift. Um, <laughs> I end up buying it for myself again on Blu-ray and iTunes. So, <laughs> and here I am talking about it years later. Uh, I had, I had no experience with, uh, at that point, uh, the Dennis Lehane novels. Uh, I end up after really enjoying the film, I think immediately uh, buying the first, um, adventure, the first, uh, in the series of the Kinsey and Gennaro, uh, books, which I think there are four or five. Mm. I think this is the fourth. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, but like my experience with Gone Baby Gone, the Christmas gift, I enjoyed that first one so much that I never read another. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that you stick with these things. Like, I really like this. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if somebody buys it for me, I'll read it in three yeah. years. <laughs> I need, I need to be like you and start a Patreon. That's hey, it? I really like this book once. Would someone buy me the second one? Hey. <laughs> it can be a beat-up copy, a used copy. So It might yeah, happen, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> but then I'd have to give out my address, and I don't know if Ugh. I want to do that on Just your get show. a P.O. box, man. <laughs> you know how weird that would be? Your secret Amazon locker drop site. 
<laughs> for podcast listeners. That's fantastic. Why are you doing this, sir? Well, I, I'm on a podcast and I talk shit about Marvel movies sometimes, so I can't let people know where I live. I don't want them to. You know what's awful is you say that, and I think, me. like, you know what? That's a valid concern. <laughs> it very much is. Yeah, yes. It's terrifying. <laughs> Except you're the lovable scamp. No one ever gets mad at you. It just all gets directed at I me. Do. So I to remember anything I say, you're the one that gets unfollowed, blocked, and hated for it. <laughs> right. So even my mom's gonna be like, That bastard Dave didn't like he didn't appreciate that Christmas gift that I gave you, that son of a bitch. So No, she'll never say that. Your mom loves me. I don't know why. Questionable taste, but <laughs> Well, I mean, I, she had me, so yes. Yeah, I mean, nowhere to go but up, decision. right? I mean, it's... Questionable decision right there <laughs> to carry me to term. <laughs> uh, only on this show. You know my mom should have had an abortion. That's <laughs> that's amazing. All right, we are... <laughs> this is like a War Machine versus War Horse episode. We are so far off topic. Told you I was going to host this show. Yeah, you did. Uh, it's my own fault. Uh, so, uh, let's jump into the direction. This is, of course, uh, Ben Affleck's first film he directed. Um, and that's kind of our tie-in for our, for our new movie this week, which is American Pastoral. Uh, <laughs> and I can't even get that word out without choking on it. Um, so, you know, I think when I first heard about this movie, you said it was really good and you said it was directed by Ben Affleck. I think I laughed. I think like those things didn't work in my head when you said that out loud. <laughs> Uh, but this is a pretty amazing first film, uh, and especially from someone who hasn't – who didn't, like, set out to be a director, you know, like, set out to be a writer, set out to be an actor, and then kind of transferred into this kind of odd part of, his, part of his career where he does both. And you kind of expect his first film to be a little bit weak and a little bit amateurish, but I don't think you get much of that here. But what did you think of his direction here? No, that's actually like where Argo comes in, I guess. <laughs> right. That feels like a first film. It's a good first film, but it feels like a first film. Like everything is pretty obvious in that movie. Yeah. Every movie it, it's perfectly makes. entertaining. It's sort of a good mainstream thriller. Uh, right. It's lacking the depth of his first two films. And uh, like you, I kind of go in you know, descending order, I guess, of release where the town goes in the middle. And, yeah. Uh, we'll see with the, the next one. I yeah, it's very assured. I don't know if that's because he has such a, you know, it is about his home, and right. I did read that this is this is his favorite his novel. Favorite, like he's read so, it a dozen times. Like this is he knows you know, the material. I I kind of compare it to um like when you fall in love with a band and it's like their first album, and it's not because you're being a hipster and saying like you know I discovered them first. It's just that all of their life experiences and everything, they're taking kind of their one shot and it's culminated in this piece of art. Whereas the next time right. they're taking the two years in between their first album and the next one to like, all right, what do we got now? We got to come up with something else. And I just think yeah, it's that a it's sophomore been... slump, right? Like usually it's like this, this first album or this first movie has years of passion behind it. And then yes. it's like, okay, we had a lot of fun. We did a lot of drugs. We had a lot of sex because we got really popular. Uh, what do we do now? Like, what do we have? left after those years of kind of distilling into this passion. And I'm I'm in no means, you know, saying that the town is a sophomore slump. I think it's it's no. a great action movie. Uh it's a completely different headspace than Gone Baby Gone. Uh oh, yeah. and also makes a lot more sense that Ben Affleck would star in that one as oh, well. Yeah. The only thing unfortunate about um Casey Affleck being the lead in this because I, I do remember it being toyed with on if Affleck was going to play the part, which I don't think he really fits. No, because uh, no. the dude's like six foot four, and it's he huge. is a Michael Bay action hero. Right. Um, 
which really would you know shade those sequences where Casey Affleck is dealing with the locals and is in a very possibly violent situation. It's like, far more it'll be fine. to get out of it. Yeah, Affleck, you're like, all right, when's he going to like, you know, when's a bomb going to go off and he walks through the flames and right. you know, puts on the Daredevil costume and all that. Oh, please, uh, no. Anything but that. That's... But the problem with that is, you know, this is something that it does work as its own film, like beginning, middle and end. But I do love the chemistry that we see between the Kinsey and Gennaro characters, Patrick and Angie. And it's like, wow, since there was a series of these, I would love to have seen these actors be able to reprise that. Probably not being bankrolled with Casey Affleck. But I do wonder if Ben Affleck Affleck had taken the part, if they would have given him another shot. Or, you know, he can pretty much write his own check at Warner Brothers now that he's fucking Batman. Right. I was sure you were going to break into your hatred of short people. I was sure it's like the only thing wrong with Casey Affleck. (laughs) He he's the one that gets a pass from me. Yeah, you don't, don't Dave. But Casey Affleck gets a pass. Look, if we talk about some of the places you have texted me from, I feel like I've passed that test. I feel like <laughs> it's it's like Casey Affleck is one and I'm one A. That's that's the way I see myself. That is uh since we're on uh on air, that is a very fair point. I yeah, will concede. That is the only that's the only way I'm gonna say that without getting you into too much trouble. <laughs> and the listeners can kind of fill in what they think I'm talking about. Please, uh, uh, you don't have tweet, to take wild guess. <laughs> tweet me at PCK study. What was Mike doing where he texted me that I think so highly of myself now? I'm pretty sure you only need two guesses and you'll probably get it. Yeah, I would hope so. I would hope so. All right. Uh, but in terms of direction, I really like I really like the opening of this film. I think it's why I immediately thought of this theme of place identity, because it really he did a really great job, and obviously he cares about and loves Boston a lot, and you get that from this intro. And I love – I did, a you know, a very little bit of research, which, you know, amounts to opening up IMDb and looking at the trivia. That's like my level of research, that a lot of the people in the shots, actually most, if not all of them, are actual residents of this area. He didn't hire a bunch of actors, which is why it actually – there's no nice way to say this, but it's like striking how not good looking the people are in these shots where they look like real people. They don't look like they don't look like movie stars, whereas like in- I'm sorry, am I on an episode of True Romance right now? I don't <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, no, if I if I was on True Romance, I would have uh, much meaner things to say about about these people other than they're not that good looking. I think that's pretty tame <laughs> for True Romance. Uh, but I, I like that. I like that it sets the stage and makes makes the area feel lived in. It doesn't feel like, oh, I've seen that guy this place. I've seen that woman uh, on this TV show. Like, you didn't get any of that. And I love how he sets that emotion in that scene from the very beginning. Well, even as I was talking about the casting of his brother uh, instead of himself, genuine you know movie star, uh, this is a film where it's all character actors. I mean, I, I would say the biggest star here is what, Morgan Freeman? I guess. Yeah. So uh, for me, not only with the extras, not only with filming it in Boston and not, you know, using Toronto as Boston. (laughs) Got to get that tax uh, break, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It would have been in New Orleans for some weird reason. (laughs) Good luck Uh, making that. That's oof. But there's a genuine sort of authenticity to it all in in the casting. And if you have no experience with the, the novels, if you're just, you know, watching it, we can we can see you know, any of these characters sort of rising up to be the lead, like they're yeah. all, they're equal. So when you see uh, Casey Affleck and Ed Harris and they often go toe to toe, face to face, Ed Harris, very intense gentleman, <laughs> I think even in bit. real life, yeah. I think this is, this is just Ed Harris. Just... He didn't even know he was playing a part. Um, <laughs> 
you know, I, I don't necessarily feel like the film is weighing one argument over the other. And that's very important because yes. the, the third act and the big reveal is going to put you in a place where you're having to decide, you know, what you, would you do? And you don't have a, a movie star to sort of hold your hand and say like, well, very he's true. The movie star, so that's who I go with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we talked about the fact that, you know, you expect, I guess you expect a little less from a first time director. You expect a lot of camera movement. You expect a lot of flash. And I love that we didn't get that. I think the flashiest moments we get are, the scene of uh, one of our characters kind of running through the brush as, you know, they think the, the child is being thrown over mm. and you get the kind of fir- the, the first person view. And then the scene uh, where our main character kind of figures out and finds this child molester and sees, you know, the blood in the sink and we, we assume sees the body and you get these kind of flashes of black as he is just internally losing it and making this very, very powerful decision. I think those are the only flashy moments of the movie. I'm torn on on this the first person aspect. That's I'm not a big fan of that in movies in general. Like I save that for fucking horror nonsense like like Evil Dead. Uh but I did like the the moment of the kind of the the flashes of black. I think that really works and it's it's really emotionally affecting paired with that kind of torment on Casey Affleck's face. I really enjoyed those moments. Well, it's it's tricky, right? Because uh, obviously everyone's going to be horrified by what they get a glimpse of. But I you also, hope so. yeah, <laughs> you you don't want to sort of you don't want to fetishize the entire act there. Not only of what's happened to the child, you don't want to look at it as you know gore porn because this right. is a tragedy, and you also don't want to fetishize what he does to right. the man when he takes you know vengeance when he seeks justice, which is something that. I think you would have filmed it differently if the Ed Harris character had been the one to do it. Oh, because yeah. Because it would have been a dirty, hairy moment. He would have glorified and mm-hmm. sort of reveled in him being the, the hand of, of God there. And so, yeah, I, I really like that that sequence because I think that's a very difficult thing where you really – you don't want the audience to feel any differently than how they should there. You really want to sort of guide their hand and that, that's the moment in the film where I think it's allowed because it's like everyone – we see you know, we see a drug dealer. We see Bubba – who leads him there. And I'm assuming we don't know a whole lot about this character that he doesn't have a lot of great feelings for the law, given that it conflicts with his line of work his business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We are. And then we see the Ed Harris character multiple times talk about what he's willing to do and that he is proud of what Casey's character does to cross that line. And so that's that's the moment where, you know, a lot of the rest of the film, what happens with the, the kidnapping, there is a they live in a world of gray. But there, I think it was very important that you do it in a very particular way where it's like, OK, this has to be done. Also, it's a, the matter of timing. You're talking about cutting to black. Mm-hmm. I think we have to kind of confuse the, the audience a little bit as far as like how much time passes. Yeah, because there's sometimes where you can if you just hold the shot and see him look at this child's body and then, you know, vomit and then kill the guy. It won't play that dramatically because then then you're wondering, like, was this something he always felt that he could do, that he could take a man's life, like shoot someone in the back? And it it sort of muddies the issue as far as the timing of the events there. I don't I don't know. And I think they also do a good job of muddying that issue when he goes out and the cops are all like, good job, kid. Like and you can see in his face that he's like he's conflicted about what he's done. And I think really when you break this movie down to me, that's really what this movie is about, is that there are some situations where there are no easy choices. And I think you get that in this scene and you get that at the end of the film. Like I like, I mean, we'll talk about this more with writing, but I still don't know how I feel about the ending of this film. It's still a, it would still be a difficult decision. I don't know 
which way is right. And the, the way they end the film is just kind of brilliant in that sense. It's not going to surprise you that uh, my mother and I did have a big argument about Shocking. that final decision. Shocking. <laughs> 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 of course there is. Yeah, I think I think there's also a lot of a lot of shots that seem like on first watch seem maybe unnecessary, but as you watch it, like it matters to the entire story. Like there's a shot in the house of all this kind of all these like Catholic memorabilia, memorabilia, all this kitsch, and I think it it does kind of two things. Is one it sets again sets the place, sets the tone because it is Boston after all, but it also takes a look at kind of the the difference between what we present as people and who we are as people. Like if you put all that at the forefront, like, is it, is it your faith or is it something you're trying to like put in front of yourself? Like, this is who I want to be, but the person I really am is something totally different. So I love those little moments. Uh, and also just, we talked about the beginning, but throughout the movie, you get more shots of Boston. He never lets you forget where you are because if you just have that opening and then you're like, Oh, we got Boston accents. We're fine. Uh, I think it would be easy to lose track of what this place is and what the culture of that place is. We did uh, an episode on Triple uh, Nine, another Casey Athlete joint earlier. Exactly, and that was something that you and I were very confused about because Where you know, we? apparently it was it was in Atlanta, but you could tell that it probably wasn't written for Atlanta. That's just you know the Georgia tax credits there that they could get. Because uh, I was like, I was thinking like, is this L.A.? Does L.A. Right. look like this? What is it? Where's this <laughs> supposed to be? And it, yeah, it, it's it's the little small things that probably shouldn't matter, but it really sort of comes to define a film, especially when you're making it about uh, like uh, sort of an, an underworld in a way. Which right. this, this is like the opposite of Triple Nine, where it's actually, you know, we're, we're seeing the ones who are supposed to control the underworld that are are actually involved in it. But yeah, it's just it's and like also a, it's good and it matters. Unlike Triple Nine, it's, oh, Dave, it's also the opposite Dave. of Triple Nine. <laughs> Why do you have to be mean, Dave? <laughs> That's who I am. What do you want from me? <laughs> but yeah, I I think this is something that. Uh, that's what you get when, as you said, it's a passion project. When you get someone right. who wants to really uh, show that world and show those people, and by by inviting these people to be a part of the filmmaking process, um, I don't feel like you're making you don't using them to like make fun of this world in a way. Like I think it's something and it would be that, really easy to go that route. It's something that I think uh, Spotlight did fairly well yeah um but oh I my god did you just say something positive about spotlight are you feeling uh, all right about to say something negative i'm gonna so. edit it out don't worry <laughs> but what but. you were saying about you know having it reinforced the the world that they live in and just having that on in the background where it's like these shots like why did they include that uh i feel like that's what spotlight did not do well spotlight would always sort of have someone remind you this is Boston, the Catholic Church. Like it's like not these subtle. People live, these people live here. Why why are they reminding each other? You don't walk around just saying this is Lexington everywhere you go. That's not horses. They matter here. Fantastic. Uh, anything else about the direction before we move on to the acting? I think that this is the you know it's the rare time you know you talked about actors and we're going to see with American Pastoral I guess later this week on the podcast what an actor can bring to it with his experience as an actor. This is something that I feel like Ben Affleck in the casting uh, got people who he knew could do the job. Like it, it helped him in a way to have these right. veteran actors, and he had a world that he realized like he's really he's making it easy on himself, but it's. Uh, for the betterment of the product. So I think that's something that for a first time filmmaker and an actor, 
uh, you should probably use the the tools in your toolbox that you know will help you the most. And Ed Harris, Morgan Freeman, uh, those are those are the guys. Those are some heavy hitters. Yeah, they're all right. And, and yeah. the dude from uh, uh, Deadwood, I forget his he name. He still has that killed. fucking mustache. Oh, that mustache! Man, I actually looked it up. That's why he has the mustache for this role. Is he was still shooting Deadwood, so he couldn't he shave it. Have that mustache, God! If I could grow that thing, <laughs> it's epic. <laughs> Knock people out with it. <laughs> you don't need to fight. Just the intimidation factor. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but that's a really good point is I think um, – I mean who knows how much of this is due to funding and how much of this is due to Ben Affleck's choice. But the choice of casting – I mean like I wouldn't call Casey Affleck at that point an unknown completely. Like people knew who he was, but he's certainly not a bankable star. And, it, and I'm sure if this goes to a major studio and a big-time director – they would be tempted to put like we need we need a figurehead here. We need someone to bring people in because this movie is going to be hard to watch. Like it's a disturbing film, so we need we need that that Hollywood leading man here. And I think it I think it works so much better that there is no true leading man here. Like you mentioned, it it, it means that your main character is actually at risk. You know, like instead of like, well, he'll be fine. He's the star. So so I think it, it was a really good choice. And who knows how much of that is due to necessity and how much of that is due to Ben Affleck being a smart director. But either way, I mean, I think he's proven himself at this point to be at worst, a capable director and at best, a very good one. So, and it doesn't look ridiculous to have Casey Affleck running around with people who live in the right. area as extras. It doesn't look like Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. trying to be One of the, the common people. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that's actually a perfect segue to acting since we're talking about Casey Affleck. So now's your chance, Mike, now's your chance, chance to gush about God. the Casey Affleck. That voice. Oh, that voice. Oh, just I uh, just imagine it Casey Affleck just whispering sweet nothings <laughs> in my ear. Jesus Christ. Uh I, what I really like about him and cuz you point out that he at that point was even less of a name. If he has a name now, I think he's just a respected actor among yeah. actors. I don't think he's above the title uh type material as much as I enjoy his presence. His, he I doesn't even beat out Chris Pine for being above the title. Like Jesus. <laughs> You know, I uh, I'm never going to talk, stop talking shit about that movie, by the way. That's I, I, of course, disagree with that. But then Chris Pine did star in Hell or High Water. So that's he has changed. And, you know, that's, changed that's a the conversation. Role, isn't it? That's, it is. That was a, um, Damn you, Chris Pine. This, <laughs> your hatred of Chris Pine. I mean, he's got a big head. That's about the one thing. I would, <laughs> he's got a pretty wicked forehead. But <laughs> um, I got nothing against him. But here, I think going in and gone, baby gone. I had seen him in uh, the Last Kiss, like the Zach Braff uh, remake, uh, mm-hmm. the Italian film. Uh, he was very good in that. He's probably the best thing about that, and he had sort of a sort of the, the quiet part. And I guess that set me up for Gone Baby Gone because otherwise I would would have remembered him as the the goofy kid from Goodwill Hunting. That the was one my yeah. One who doesn't get a great speech about friendship and the one who doesn't get to be like the stoic. The stoic one who jacks brawl. off into a catcher's bit. That's his memorable moment. Like, But he does fight. He, he is told right. to get out of the car and fight, and he does. Yeah. Uh, but he has a pretty goofy punching face in slow-mo, <laughs> if I recall. The man just likes his roast beef sandwiches. I have no problem with that. Good for him. No, no. <laughs> Gotta eat. So I guess I, uh, I didn't really expect for him to be able to – uh, sort of hold the space like he does because he's yeah. a character that he does have some cool lines, but he doesn't have the dialogue certainly that Ed Harris has. And he's usually, right. given his profession, given that he's like a he's a private investigator, uh, he's reacting and letting other people talk to him and trying often not to give away 
uh, his thoughts on what they've just said, unless it's necessary. Right. And he's a middleman at, at different points in the film. So I didn't expect him to accept that. And you're talking about, you know, having a movie star there. I can't imagine a movie star listening, just allowing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. we brought, like Tom Cruise, I was making fun of Tom Cruise, but my favorite Tom Cruise performance is Rain Man because that's, that's what he is the one that's reacting and he is sort of just holding the screen and usually just trying to process what Dustin Hoffman's doing. And that's I that's I think probably the last time Tom Cruise allowed <laughs> right. himself to do that. Oh sure you're gonna say uh, his your favorite role was Magnolia, I'm sure. Andrew from A B Film well, Review will be very upset with you now. <laughs> that you know, even Paul Thomas Anderson said that's the movie star part in the film. Like it's an ensemble, but that's the one with all the killer lines. That's the one who is yelling, screaming, <laughs> uh emoting all the time. Uh it's it's a great performance. He should have won an Oscar for it. I'll yeah. say that. But I also think he should have won an Oscar for best actor in Rain Man over Dustin Hoffman. So there you go. Yeah, I think Casey Affleck is great here. I think my only I think this uh, this started my my kind of love affair with Casey Affleck, where I was like, I need to watch everything he's in is once I saw this, because like you mentioned, like my I like Casey Affleck. Like I was like, he's enjoyable. I liked him in Goodwill Hunting. I like his presence, but I hadn't really seen much that he'd been in. But then I saw this and then, I, of course, I saw the um uh, the Robert Ford movie that he was in, which I can never remember the full title because it's like 12 Pretty seconds long. long. Yeah. <laughs> like the um, uh, Fina Apple album, the poem. Yeah, exactly. When the uh, pond, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> the assassination. What an dot, interesting dot, dot. reference. Mike, I never thought we would go Fiona Apple. But he was great in that as well. So now he's become one of those actors that I think – I think especially in like 20 or 30 years when you look back at his career, it's going to be a really interesting filmography. Like he's not he's not someone who's six foot four. He's not his brother. So he's not going to get those quote unquote movie star parts. So he's going to get these really interesting kind of indie film parts, you know, like later this year in a Kenneth Lonergan film, you know, uh, Manchester by the Sea. I'm really looking forward to his performance there. But I think he really he really captured my imagination here. And a lot of it is that. You mentioned earlier, like, he looks like he belongs in this setting, and I think that comfort level really helps us as an audience. Like, there are terrible things happening, but he doesn't really seem overwhelmed by it until things get really crazy in kind of the second and third act. So I like that we have him as kind of our guide in this story, and it's interesting to have a character who's a – uh, who's an investigator who like people come to him and he's like, nah, we probably shouldn't like, I don't really, we shouldn't do this. Like we shouldn't work. And it's, it's, it's a very different opening than you expect from a movie about a private investigator. Where it's like, Oh, I got the case. Let's, let's do this. But he's, he's very kind of, uh, he and his partner both are kind of like, I'm not sure if we should be doing this. And I like that we walk into this movie like that. Cause the whole movie becomes like this. Like, I'm not sure what he's doing is the right thing. I'm not sure if he should be making this choice. Yeah, I and I I like that with Michelle Monaghan that they don't I feel like in other hands they would have to uh, establish that maybe his partner is very disagreeable with them. Maybe they come from different backgrounds and different worldviews as opposed to being from the same place and having a genuine affection, you know, relationship between the two of them both professionally and personally and can come to completely opposite decisions on how to handle right. things. I, I feel like in other hands, it would have been hinted at that there would have been disagreements on, on uh, you know, how they're going to handle the exchange um, if they can trust Ed Harris or not. And I like that it's sort of from 
his point of view, it's kind of a sucker punch at the end. Someone that seems yeah. to be lockstep on the same page with him. They know how to work together. They're they're not easily rattled. Uh, in fact, I would say she's the, the cooler one uh, yeah. oftentimes. <laughs> um, and yet she's the one that, you know, is does something that he finds he finds abhorrent from the other characters in the film. And she she says, you know what, this is this is probably for the best. Like, right. And I, I, I think that it does. I wonder if it plays that way in the novel. As I said, I stopped reading after I greatly enjoyed the first one because yeah. that's, that's well, just I did what hear I do. that Dennis Lehane, the, the author of this book, based that character on his own wife, uh, which is interesting. Uh, and so maybe get a clue into kind of how they work together as a couple is how these people work together. Like they seem very uh, in lockstep, but I think in a lot of ways she is there to make our main character question if what he's doing is the right thing. Because I think if you have them both agree at the end of the film that what they're, what he's doing is right. I think it robs the movie of its kind of emotional gut punch. I think if then you just go, well, everyone else in this town is all fucked up. I mean, look at everything they've been doing so you can negate everything they're saying. But if this person who's been with them the whole time says like, I don't think this is the right choice. Then as an audience, we have to think about it too. And I think it absolutely works. And, and she was all in. I mean, she's the one that jumps off in you know into the quarry like into the water she <laughs> she has the badass sort of action moment so you can't say that she wasn't just as passionate about right. finding this girl again and giving her back to her family putting her back with her mother until she you know she gets to see how things play out like it's right. like once all the information is presented to her she she goes opposite of what her initial task was and he he's an interesting character because he just can't he can't let it go. And you wonder, is it just a, he just feels a professional obligation. Is that the only thing holding him back? Or does he really feel like, you know, coming from your place of origin is that important because he, he has grown up with all these people. Does he feel like he is going against sort of his neighbors to to allow her to leave? Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of Michelle Monaghan, I think this is an actress who's like criminally, uh, undercast in movies i think i think she's fantastic like i every time she's in a movie i enjoy her in the movie like i think she's a really good actress like i liked her in kiss kiss bang bang i think she does a great job but she's just not in many movies i mean she's going to be in that patriots day movie later this year with uh marky mark but like she just doesn't get a lot of good roles and i'm trying to figure out why like what is the pixels adam sandler didn't do it for fuck you fuck you <laughs> jesus i can't believe i watched that movie one of the worst movies i've ever thank seen. you movie pass <laughs> yeah that is a movie pass special right there yeah and i mean that's that's i think that's the one obvious huge misstep uh in her career like taking that role because that movie was kind of universally panned uh but i just wonder why she doesn't get more work because i think she's great what did you think of her performance here i mean we talked a little bit about it already well yeah clearly i'm a bigger fan than you because i i just went ahead and started giving her credit and praise and that's because you didn't watch pixels (laughs) i actually did doesn't she have the worst part doesn't she have the most thankless part yes (laughs) the one that for no reason whatsoever should ever entertain the notion of dating adam sandler but there it is because yeah that's yeah um she is. I'm just looking at her IMDb. I've not, as you know, I'm not a TV guy, as you well know. She was in, I guess, the Path that was a, that the Hulu series about like the cult, which I, I think uh, seemed like it got good reviews. Uh, she's a true yeah, detective. She wasn't true detective. Um, 
<laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just sort of, you know, jumped on Adam Sandler and the way they sort of treat women. <laughs> so I don't know if True Detective, you yeah. know, I love that, uh, is the grace part. But uh, she she gets a more well-rounded part than anyone else uh, yes. in the cast. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, it, it just seems like source code, um, you know, Mission Impossible movie. She's kind of just in that sort of thankless action role. Yeah. I really liked her in uh, The Heartbreak Kid, which is not a very good movie. Right. You know, the Fairly Brothers remake. But she by far comes off the best right. in that. And not to say that, oh, she should just do more romantic comedies or something. But she was so charming in that. And you don't really get yeah. that in these action movies roles. And you honestly don't get that in Gone Baby Gone. She's not playing like a charming character that's just no. like, I want to hang out with her. Like she's <laughs> she's pretty much looking for a missing child. She's so very serious. Cracks. Yes. <laughs> would have been weird. Kind of <laughs> yeah, that would have been a weird tonal shift. Yeah, but I, but I think kind of like Casey Affleck. She kind of, I don't think people would know like her name. Be like, oh, Michelle Monaghan's in this. Like she, they might like her, her presence, but she's you know character actress in a way, very yeah. beautiful character actress. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I think she's great here. Um, and then of course we talked about uh, Ed Harris uh, and Morgan Freeman. I think Morgan Freeman, it, it's perfect casting here because you want to trust him because it's Morgan Freeman. Like he's got that voice. He's that that symbol of authority we trust. And then for the movie to kind of turn that on its head at the end of the film, I think is really interesting. Like, I think how he... dare you Morgan Freeman, you told me about penguins once and I loved it. <laughs> well, he's like the voice of everything. Right. So you just, you know, I mean, they went to the point in a comedy of making him play God. So, you know, I mean, this is the kind of level we're talking about, but I like that his character, even at the end of the film, if you were to ask him, you could he could try to convince you that he's doing the right thing. It's not like they turn it on his head like he's this horrible, horrible criminal and did something terrible. You can see he's trying to do the right thing, uh, just maybe in the wrong way, depending on which character you ask. But I really like his portrayal here. And I loved Ed Harris, but I'm biased. I love Ed Harris in everything. Like, he can do no wrong. I was watching this with Britt, with my wife, and she just leaned over to me and was like, is, she, is he just going to shout for this whole movie? And I was like, you shut up. How dare you? Don't yes. you don't you say anything <laughs> negative about Ed Harris? He is phenomenal and everything. It was like it was a real moment between us where I was like, you need to stop talking, love of my life. Ed Harris is speaking now. And he's probably got the best scene for your uh, chosen theme on this episode. Oh, yeah. He, it's why I thought of it. Yeah. Absolutely. He reminds Casey Affleck that even though, you know, he comes from the uh, the uh, the dirty south, I guess, of Louisiana. <laughs> That uh, and Harris is from the dirty south. That is the greatest. <laughs> the images in my head, I can't even tell you. Um, well, with that goatee, I sort of figure it, yeah. it fits. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, he's he's not from Boston, but he's you know old enough that he's lived there longer than Casey Affleck's been alive. Right. So, who truly is from there? Like, you know, how much experience where you can consider yourself? This is my place. This is where I you know belong in the world. Um, yeah, and it's an and, interesting thought, right? Like, is it yeah. about where you were born or is it about where you've spent your time, where you've yeah. spent your life? Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, when you asked me about that theme, I just want you to play that clip. You can just say, here's here are Mike's thoughts and just yeah, see if people that's believe it. that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't, really? <laughs> but, I did bring up Dirty South, so that was just for Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> but I think really the... Um, the kind of unsung hero of this movie, the performance I maybe like uh, the best was uh, Amy Madigan, who kind of plays the uh, the, the part of the, the grandmother in this. What uh, does she have a scowl? Oh, man, <laughs> she's so good. Like uh, when she and her husband yeah, are I fighting. The other way. She, you and I Amy Ryan. The other Amy. 
You want Amy Ryan? However, I would love to see a buddy comedy between those two characters <laughs> traveling cross country. It's like <laughs> I would watch that. Yeah, but I think they're both really good. And I think uh, you bring up Amy Ryan, like the moment at the end of the film where she makes uh, the mistake about the stu- the stuffed animal is. Or when you find out she's made that mistake is is a great moment how like kind of happy go lucky she is about everything, and you start to feel pretty okay with it uh, as an audience member like oh he made the right choice look everything is good and then you find out she gave the wrong information about her own child stuff and it's it's a heartbreaking moment like it's yeah. and it's something so simple it's not like I love that Affleck and the writers of this film don't lead you to this moment. Like, they don't say, like, hey, remember when we talked about it on the news and it's different now? Like, they, they make you put it together. And for a half second, you're like, did I remember that wrong? And then you think about, it, like, nope, she didn't even – she doesn't know her daughter. Like, she doesn't pay attention to her daughter. And it's a really – I love the kind of switch in that moment where the whole the whole movie, she's either been kind of a jerk or kind of realizing, oh, this is real and in pain. And then the end of the movie, it's like nothing ever happened. Like, she's just completely moved on with her life despite – the terrifying things that have happened uh, to her. Well, daughter. I mean, she, you know, she offers Casey Affleck up saying like, Hey, you know, if Michelle Monaghan doesn't get her head together, let me know on straight. <laughs> uh, I'll pick you up. Dust yeah. you off. <laughs> no wonder you like her so much. <laughs> it's perfect. Absolutely perfect. All right. Uh, so let's move on to the screenplay, which we've talked about a little here and there, but I think, you know, I, it's always tough to talk about screenplays when you're talking about adaptation. There's kind of another level going on there. And Affleck has talked about how he said uh, if if he were to really put everything that was in this book, it would be like a nine hour film. Like there's there's so much. But I think from someone who has, hasn't read the book, from my perspective, you would never know that. It feels like a complete story. It doesn't feel like things are missing. Uh, the mystery makes sense uh, in the film. So I think just in terms of adaptation, it feels like to me he's done a great job here at bringing this story to the screen. What about you? Yeah, it never feels like they're cheating. You know, it feels right. like the, every link in the chain, you know, there's no there's no break there. Like it makes sense. I understand why, uh, you know, Patrick Kinsey feels, OK, we're going to go here next. I should talk to this person. Uh, there's subtle shifts in the investigation uh like after he has uh shot the the child molester and they're outside the hospital um after with ed harris's partner uh i guess waiting in surgery seeing how that's gonna turn out and ed harris drinking tells him a story you know trying to justify casey affleck's actions and let slip that one of the people that he's not you know he has no idea who they are uh, was a CI for him. And he's telling just an old story from years ago. They don't have, you know, they don't have a, a cut to like Casey Affleck registering it. Uh, the light or like moment. A, yeah. a, a flashback <laughs> to him saying like Ed Harris, like, I don't know that guy. I never heard of him. Um, and it's just plays later. So like he, I like it because you get to feel like you're just as smart as the right. Kinsey character. And I like, like you, that you listen he's, to story. he's putting faith in his audience, too. He's not yeah. – like I think a lot of directors are like, oh, the general public's a bunch of idiots. We better really hammer well, this if point you, home. Let's let's say you're you're into Ed Harris's performance there. I like – you know, if I was an actor, I feel like this is what Ben Affleck brings to the direction there and that he lets Ed Harris have his scene, have his moment. We're not going to uh, – in pursuit mm. of putting all the puzzle pieces together for the mystery – 
break apart this scene explaining right. the character of Ed Harris and what justifies him to do the things that he's done up to that point. We're going to save that for when Casey Affleck goes and talks to Michael K. Williams. And so if you forgot that fact, it is reiterated. Like he's like, he lied to me about this. And then you can be like, oh, okay. I, I wasn't paying attention because I was totally into what Ed Harris was doing, which I think is fine. Right. Um, so I think this with the screenplay, that's a difficult balancing act. You know, like LA confidential is another mammoth crime mystery about dirty cops. And that adaptation to... should win every award. There is well, the fact that they made that movie out of that tome like, is incredible. My favorite part of LA confidential is nowhere to be seen in gone baby gone. And I think that's a, a plus for gone baby gone because they don't have to have the Rolo Tomasi moment where right. stepping back, you can, even if you're a big fan of that film, and I love that scene, I love how they managed to chop out 500 pages of the book <laughs> just like, like that. that. <laughs> um, I never feel like there's one moment in Gone Baby Gone that sticks out where it was like a shortcut like that. Right. And that's that's a testament to the, the writing and the direction. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, this movie's uh, filled with great lines that I'm sure some of which we'll talk about in our favorite scenes. At least I know I will. Uh, but one of the things that stands out to me is like right after – Right after he kills his child molester and already because of the way it's shot, you're not sure how to feel about it. You know, he comes out and talks to the cops and he says, you know, murder is a sin. And then they tell him, well, it depends on who you do it to. And I think that line really tells you everything you need to know about how difficult the decisions are in this film. And there's two or three moments in the film that really fit that line. It's like, I, I feel like I'm doing the right thing, but by the letter of the law, this isn't the right thing. And it's a, and it's a real struggle for our main character. So I love that that line is in there right after that really powerful moment where, as you mentioned, it would be really easy to fetishize that moment and be like, yeah, he killed the child molester. They deserve to die, you know, but instead it's like, no, this is, I mean, for, I would assume the, the vast majority of the population, no one has ever pulled the trigger on a gun, let alone pulled the trigger on a gun and ended someone's life. Like that is a huge decision. Even if you think they are evil and they are terrible, to put that on yourself is a is a huge moment in this character's life. And I like that we the movie takes a moment and really lets us soak that in instead of letting us celebrate and revel in the death of this person who's abused children. And it's it's someone that has in in my favorite scene in the film has drawn his gun on a dude in a bar when he feels threatened and you, uh, you and I are on the him. same page, sir. I <laughs> <laughs> absolute favorite scene. <laughs> well, so we, we know that he will do so to defend himself, right. but that's the difference between that scene is we, we see the child molester on his hands and knees with his back to him on the floor. There's absolutely no way you can say that this guy is in any way a physical threat to Casey Affleck in that moment. Right. And so when there is a physical threat, he will use the threat of violence to defend himself. But my favorite moment of that scene is immediately after they get outside the bar and all that adrenaline is flooding through him. And he's like, he's sort of like, the, like it's like, Jesus Christ, he's like, this. it's like this fucking town. Like, this is like, these <laughs> right. are the people I deal with. But I, I like that it illuminates the character in that he doesn't really take any pleasure in having to, like... Right. be the badass he would much rather just be able to ask questions and be a professional and do his job right like, and he doesn't really seem to understand why these people don't want to protect their own why do they want to systematically you know why do you want to see a little girl destroyed in a way like right. why are you stopping someone why are you protecting the drug-addled mother when we're talking about a child being gone and that's that disgust for me really plays well with the disgust of the child molester, which is so obvious. I feel like it's far more subtle in that sequence where he's disgusted with this townie in the bar 
that's just like, you know, we, we keep our own secrets. How dare you try to reveal that about someone else? It's not your business. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the really interesting thing is I think you get a lot more on second watch as far as kind of the, the mystery of this film and kind of what unfolds, because there are, there are definite clues as to something is not quite right. Like there's a scene where the cops have him read a transcript of a 911 call, which you think if you first watch it, you're like, all right, they're trying to make him look foolish. They're trying to, they're trying to prove to him that he's wrong. But if you think about that for more than a second, you're like, uh, yeah, that would never fucking happen. Like they would never give him that information. They would just tell him you're wrong. Get the fuck out of here. Don't bother us anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like that there's little clues like that, but I don't think, at least for me, there was never a moment on first watch where I was like, this isn't right. You know, I I think this girl hasn't been kidnapped. Like I never had that moment. Um, So I I think they kept it hidden well. But again, like you mentioned uh, earlier with the script, they don't cheat. There are hints there that kind of something is rotten here, but I don't think it's enough for you to kind of put it all together. So when the ending of this film happens, it is it is a gut punch. It is brutal to kind of figure out that these people that we've trusted, some of the few that we actually have trusted that we think, even if they're a little off, they're doing the right thing. And we find out they're really not. And I think it's a brilliantly written script. And again, it helps that you have really good source material. Yeah. Dennis Lehane can, I guess he can write a little bit. He's all right. I guess. He's written a couple (laughs) books. You know, they turned his books into movies. He must be good. That's really the, (laughs) as with Philip Roth, which we'll talk about soon. (laughs) Here's the thing. See, Dave has seen American Pastoral, and I have not. So uh, this uh, this does not build confidence for me going to the movies this weekend. Hey, I said I said nothing. I said nothing about whether it's good or bad. You just said everything. Uh, nope, no sir. I don't it, need Patrick Kinsey to really shake the the tree on this one. Ugh. Goddamn smart audiences are the worst. Uh, so really briefly, I think we can talk about uh, production value. I think. Really, the production value is about how, uh, as we've talked about, Affleck sets the scene of where we are. I think, like you said, it would have been easier to film this anywhere else. And, you know, I I think he even, I read in the trivia, he even had to deal with, there was this, in the very beginning, they have this woman kind of uh, being interviewed by the police, uh, or by the press, rather. And (laughs) I guess she was really upset uh, that the streets were closed down because she lived in that neighborhood. So in order to kind of placate her, he was like, hey, you want to be in a movie? <laughs> like, why don't you uh, do this interview? And and he just let he gave her the lines and let her be in it. And it's and it's a really smart decision. And there's there's very few missteps in this film with production value. There's I don't think there's a single moment where I don't feel like I'm in Boston or I don't feel like there is a world around this house or around this neighborhood where they are. And that's something I think that is missing in a lot of movies. A lot of movies end up feeling a little bit like plays where you just feel like this is our scene and nothing Mm. else happens and nothing else happens with these characters after. And I think this movie never falls into that trap. It always feels real. And the characters always feel like they go on to do other things. Like we don't know really where our two main characters are left with one another as we, as we end the film and it could go any one of about 10 directions. So I think he really sets that scene perfectly. Yeah, I would say the only, I mean, the one that sticks out and it's purposeful is the quarry sequence because mm-hmm. uh, that's where the whole thing is staged. This yeah. this transaction, 
Um, and it does. That's when things do start to feel sort of amiss here. It does like, stand out why? as being like a little over dramatic. Like we're yeah, gonna meet at yeah. the quarry, and then the child is thrown off the cliff. Like it's right. super dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. So, but but it should. You know that that's that is something that's being uh, a play that's being put on for the Kinsey and Gennaro characters. So uh, it's understandable. But when you're first on first watch, I'm like, well, are we, we're in a different movie. Like this isn't right. Uh, and then, then there's the, the shock to the system right back where we jump ahead in time. And it's like, you know, things just moved on. Right. Like, you know, she was she was gone. And I love that. It's a beautiful transition. Like, and so they also gets back in the world. speaking of setting the place, they also have this moment where another kid gets kidnapped. Uh, but it happens to be a child of color and nobody mm-hmm. Nobody reacts. Nobody right. gives a shit. And right. I like that little moment. It says it says a lot about, you know, kind of the cultural makeup of, of Boston and, and what goes on kind of underneath the surface there. And it's a moment that wasn't terribly necessary for the film, but I think it says a lot about the characters that we've met, that they freaked out before. And now either, either one, it's become common and no one cares, or two, it's not about a little a little blonde white girl. So no one cares or some mixture of the two, which I think is a an interesting thing to include in the film adaptation. Well, uh, was that Bill Burr, the comedian, uh, has said that uh, Boston uh, is San Francisco if San Francisco was <laughs> racist. I remember that. Yeah. And, it's, you know, I have been to both cities and he's not that far off. That's, that's about right. <laughs> I assume he would know. He's a he's a native. Right? He's that's from his, there. He can say term. that. Okay. He can yeah, say that. Yeah. yeah. Like I can talk shit about San Francisco, the Bay Area, but you know, you and Hiro need to shut your goddamn dirty mouths until you've been here. I don't want to. For hear the most it. part, I just talk shit about Florida. So well, that's, well, think... that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> As you should. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's talk about our favorite scene. So we got to talk about the bar scene, which is mm-hmm. by far. Uh, it's interesting because I think it's the most fun scene in the film. But then, as you mentioned, as he leaves, it gets a lot less fun. And you really see kind of the effect that you can tell this is not the first interaction Patrick has had like this. Dave, right? Big Dave. Big Dave. All right. I'm Adrian Patrick. Nice to meet you. A little fucking light in the ass to be talking shit, ain't you? <laughs> Jesus, I'm just playing. Listen, buy a couple of fucking drinks of scroll. Take a couple tonics. The fuck you doing? Nothing. What's up, Lenny? Don't talk about people you don't know. What do you mean? These are my friends. I know them for years. What's the problem, guy? You said you weren't a cop, right, guy? Yeah, I'm not a cop. Yeah, the one you fuck off. Why don't you mind your business? He's gonna come in here and be a smart ass. You're awfully worried about people's asses there, Dave. Yeah, you probably got a fucking ass like a skippy job. <laughs> what are you doing here anyway? Dave can't make a martini with the shit. Try to help Aline find her daughter. Is that all right? Listen, don't come in here running your mouth thinking you're better than me. I'm not the fucking one. All right, just cool it. Cool it. Listen to this douchebag. Bitch, he fucks his ass on half. Jesus Christ, what the fuck is the matter with you guys? You, you punk fucking jackass. We're leaving, all right? You know, Dave, I think it's your good looks. Because there is some pussy in here tonight. Open that door, Rummy. Open the door, Mike. Now. If you ever want to get fucked, let me know. How's that, motherfucker? Now you know. Your fucking mouth's closed. 
What? You want to say some shit, Fat Dave? Fuck you. Fuck you. Make me a martini, you fucking fat bastard. Make the fuck out. Make me a fucking martini, you fat fucking retard. Like, he's been in these situations before, and he's fucking sick of it. Like, he just can't deal with this anymore. But there are some genuinely funny moments. Like, I love that they're, they kind of mock him for being a little uppity. Like, oh, I bet you want a fucking martini, you know. And and I love that he turns that around. Like, make me a fucking martini, which is <laughs> which is my favorite moment in the film. Which, when you were watching this and posted on Twitter, I just couldn't help myself. Just had to hashtag martini, because it is the best. And maybe And that was the moment... Where I was like, I like this fucking Casey Affleck guy. Like this, and I love, and you know, as a short person myself, I love that he takes control of this situation and he is completely dwarfed by everyone in the room, including his partner. <laughs> and yes. I, I love that he has that, he has that moment. And you, because he's surrounded, I think if it was just him against one or two guys, you'd feel a little weird about him pulling a gun, like a really, you have to pull a gun. But he's, there's like five or six guys there. So it seems it, his decisions fit the scenario he's in. And I just, I love every moment of that scene, not only because of him, but because the interactions feel real. And I love that there's one guy who's willing to talk and everyone else, you can see them kind of side eye this guy. Like, is this guy really giving away secrets of our neighborhood? Like you're basically talking to a cop. And I love the kind of realism of that moment. Yeah. I mean, they, they certainly asked for it. I mean, they locked the door. So it's like, they, they, at the very least, they're going to uh, give him a beating or something or something worse, you know, to, to both parties involved. Oh, yeah. And then Michelle they have to Monahan make some character. like misogynist comment like if right, you ever want exactly. to really get fucked to give me a call. Like, well, OK. And then you feel pretty good about that guy getting pistol whipped, which is yeah. <laughs> an interesting place to be as an audience. Like, yeah, get him. <laughs> which I do think that that plays that the only reason that happens is because uh the Michelle Monaghan character has been disrespected. You know, uh, Casey Affleck's love in this film because otherwise, I don't, I don't feel like he really the way he plays Kenzie. He really cares if he's insulted. Like I don't, I think it, you know, it just rolls off his back. Whatever. Like it's just he just right. he's totally. I've heard this all and, before. <laughs> you know, he's comfortable in his own skin where you know he can disregard anything about his his world. Um, so yeah, I think that scene, as you said, you do get the badass moment. Um, but it doesn't it does not play like what I would imagine uh, another you know director would do with this. I think it would turn into some sort of action sequence or there would be a little bit more carnage and that would the audience would get to revel in blood for just a moment. It would be a and, Jack Reacher one moment. Like, <laughs> which is fine. Take all these guys out. Yes. I do not. I don't want Jack Reacher in any way investigating <laughs> a very nuanced look at, you know, lost childhood in Boston. Oh, I, just kill no everyone. <laughs> <laughs> He would have killed me before I finished my sentence there. Yeah. Enough. Oh, lost child, <laughs> shut up. No one cares. Quiet, you. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great scene, and uh, and it sets up a lot. It's not only a great scene because it's enjoyable, but it sets up the place, and it sets up who these characters are, and I think it does that tremendously well. Uh, what about you? What, any other favorite scenes that jump to mind in this movie? I think, you know, getting to uh, it, we would have to jump to the end, I guess, yeah. which is would, the next would thing be, I have on my list, too. <laughs> yeah, we would have to because uh, that whole conversation that he has with Morgan Freeman uh, at the end, it is interesting. And that's something that my mother and I disagreed on. She she did. She sided with Morgan Freeman and I sided mm-hmm. with ultimately what Casey Affleck's character does. And he, he did convince me like it, it was that the thinking that, yeah, this probably isn't what's best but that's a really tough decision to make to say, I, I'm the one who gets to decide what world you grow up in. I get to take you from home. 
without like without your input. Like, and not a only lot that, of... he seems like a, a good parent and a good match, but he is someone who is willing to break the law and kidnap a child to put them in a better place. So what's the next thing that's going to push him to to kind of make a, another questionable decision? Like, we don't really know because we, we know nothing about Morgan Freeman except what he puts out to the press and the public. Like, we have we know he lost a child. But we don't know and what the, kind of parent he was. Like, well, it's like that's that's really difficult to to play God in that way. That yeah. clearly throughout the film, the you know the idea of home and the world that we've grown up in and how it shapes us is very important to the Kinsey character, and for him to remove that culture and that sort of heritage from this this little girl, I think it's just an extremely difficult decision to make. I think that he's totally shaped by the fact that he grew up in that town and never left. Like I, I think if he was someone that an outsider, maybe he wouldn't think that's that right. important. And that's someone that, as we talked about in the bar scene, he's seen the worst of what they have to offer too. He's seen what that closed mindedness brings as far as we protect our own, even when they're horrible people. But there, right. there's an optimism to the Kinsey character that maybe he shouldn't have at this point. Maybe he's kind of foolish and naive to think that we need to keep, you know, some good in this this neighborhood in this world that looks like is surrounded by <laughs> surrounded by cops that kidnap and kill, plant evidence, um, drug dealers. Although you know, Bubba is a very <laughs> noble drug dealer, very helpful that, guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also like the way he conducts his business when a gun's pulled on him and he takes the money. <laughs> just like, okay. <laughs> and throws the drugs on the ground. Let's pour this out. Like, <laughs> Right. Just as a point of trivia about Bubba, uh, he is he is a rapper, uh, and the song playing on his car when they're driving is his own song in a true show of narcissism. <laughs> like, I have a question for you now. I, yeah. I, 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 my, after this question, I want to hear what you would do if you would side with Morgan Freeman or Casey Affleck in the decision. Or okay. I guess I should say Michelle Monaghan or Casey Affleck because uh, they're the ones with the choice. And they're both beautiful uh, people that I would be easily swayed by. So right, right. It's a good yeah. comparison. The hell with the penguin guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but just as important a question what song will play at the end of this episode is it going to be oh, a good bubba's rap or is it no, going to be something from no. win the pawn <laughs> it's a reference fiona apple uh i don't know i because you talked about like you know uh getting a a music group while they're fresh and they're young and their first uh their their first album i might have to play something from your favorite band i might have to oh. put that in there and go with their Look first at you. album I treat my guests well. (laughs) Not you, usually, but I treat the other guests well. So once every 10 episodes, I'm like, I should do something nice for Mike. (laughs) He keeps showing up. Yes, I am. This is how the people that come on for the the official longer episodes get treated. That's right. And yeah. You get like the green room treatment. It's fucking nice. opening act over there. Like, <laughs> got to watch Jack Reacher 2. Jesus. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So what so, would you do? What would you do? Yeah, would you, you go know, with Monaghan or Affleck? I, I flip-flop back and forth all the time when I think about this because it is a really a really painful and a really difficult decision. No matter – like there's no good decision here. You know, you – especially knowing the end of the film. Like I try to put that in my mind thinking right, about right. like what I would do because he doesn't know that yet. And I think I think I would probably go with Casey Affleck's tack – uh, and the the reason for that, though, is a little muddled. I think a lot of the reasoning is because I am genuinely split 50-50 and I don't know what I do. And it's safer for me to obey the law 
than to just walk away. It's safer for me to go like, okay, this is what society has told us. This is the route to go. And, you know, he's also right in a lot of ways that there are ways to report this if she mistreats her child. Like there are things in place that can have that child taken out of that home. And I actually go through this on an almost daily basis with some of my patients where I have to find out if there's a child or an elderly person being abused. And if it is, I don't get to just like, you know, hatch a plot to get that kid out of the house. I have to call child protective services and you have to go through. So I understand the thought process of like wanting to get this kid out right away. But then where's the line? You know, where what's too much abuse? What's too much neglect or mistreatment? Like where is like is like, oh, she went and she went to the grocery store and left her kid alone, which you're not supposed to do. And like, so where's where's the line here? And I don't I don't think I am the person who should be playing God and making that decision. Like, I, sh- I think I should be going through the channels that are already available. So that's probably what I do. His line about an older you know, version of this girl coming to find him later, who knows? It's heartbreaking. You know, d- if anything, just based on, you know, Morgan Freeman, just on the race issue that she was adopted. And that's, I'm assuming how they're going to play She'll it. She'll probably she figure that out. <laughs> like, I, you know, I don't, I don't really look like Pops too much. I don't look like Morgan Freeman, which is... Uh, probably good for a teenage girl. I don't. I don't know if she. <laughs> so either the mom white cheated on dad and, or and got the adopted. Of God. Those are the only... I don't know. Um, but yeah, like there's going to be a story that needs to be told there, and Patrick Kinsey's going to be a part of that story. And ultimately, he was the one. I guess the the last line of defense on how her life would be shaped for good or worse. Right. And I don't think. Yeah, like you were saying, being totally comfortable operating outside the law. I don't think he feels comfortable being a part of that narrative that I allowed you to be stolen from your home. Like right. I made decisions for you. And that's, that's ultimately where I would fall too. I just don't, you know, and I think you make a good point about trying to keep the last scene out of mind when you're watching that again. Um, because yeah, I, obviously the Amy Ryan character has a lot of issues, but it is something that if you go back to mustache, man, it's like, could you all have not done something else? Like mustache man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, live in the same I mean, building. his whole story about kind of like everything they all the lengths they went to, it's kind of like, guys, <laughs> like, there's got to be an easier way to do this. Like, it doesn't seem like they even tried to go through the proper channels. It didn't seem like they made calls to try and make this happen legally. It was just like, this is too much for us. We got to, you know, I, I know a bunch of cops. I bet we can pull this off. Like, guys. This is the wrong way to go about things. I know that guy from the dirty South with a goatee. <laughs> <laughs> He'll take care of this. God damn you. <laughs> All right. Um, so at this point, I think we'll move on to uh, to the theme. How do you think how do you think place affects these characters? I mean, we have talked about it a lot. I think I think this will just be a little bit of a rehash of things we've mentioned. But I think it is like I think I gave you two choices as far as the theme. And this is the one you chose. But And it does come up a lot here. Well, it seems to be like uh, with any of these sort of you know studies. Uh, I just read a book on uh, it was like uh, the Rust Belt of Ohio and Kentucky, um, and sort of what generations now feel like they can accomplish in the world. And they were saying that uh, like middle class to lower class whites are the ones that feel the most pessimistic mm-hmm. about their place in the world financially. That they can actually the future generations will be able to move forward. They were saying that. You know, with all the horrific things that have happened to minorities, especially in 2016, that they still have hope. feel more positively right. about what can happen for future generations. And I think that that's what this film, it was interesting watching that after reading that book, because 
it seems like the film is ultimately about what we're willing to accept in our world, whether it's, you know, what Casey Affleck is willing to accept from uh, the law with Morgan Freeman as far as what's good or bad for the the future of this child, Michelle Monaghan. Uh, Ed Harris has a very defined sense of right and wrong. Like he's he there's <laughs> he will not even entertain discussions. He is already sort of fully formed at this point with his experience and with those townies in the bar. It does seem like it's more important for them to maintain their way of life. It's almost very libertarian as far as like, you know, let that woman be a mother however she wants to be a mother. Like, it's not your place to jump in. Like, how, you know, how dare you out that? And they're not even saying she's good. (laughs) Like, no one says, hey, she's a great mother. How dare you talk about her like that? She just gets (laughs) to. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's like with this idea of place, that's that view that people who have not had that experience can't understand like how dare they sort of talk about this world and it's interesting that Casey Affleck's character is a part of it and so he's the one that almost has an outsider view of it that we see throughout the film as far as like dealing with this criminal underworld until the very end where he sticks with this sort of insider culture that you should sort of take care of business at home and I think that was that's what's most interesting because this is going to be a film that's played far outside of Boston although I'm sure the Boston residents probably watched it more times than we did because they want to point and say, Hey, there I am yelling at Ben Affleck for blocking the street. (laughs) (laughs) But most, you know, outsiders are going to look at that and be like, how can they operate in that world? But I I guarantee you that if they, you know, they was a film about their town or their culture, they would immediately come to the defense of the people here and that, you know, and making decisions for people when they've not had that experience. So that's, that's why I wanted that theme. That's, I think that's ultimately the bait of the film is what's for the betterment of future generations. And Patrick Kinsey is strangely optimistic when he has no reason to be, I don't think about that town. Yeah. The thing I thought of when I was kind of watching the end of the film and thinking about place and thinking about Patrick in particular is I think, you know, we kind of joked earlier about like, I could make fun of where I'm from, but, but no one else can. And I think, I think there's a lot of that. Uh, in Patrick's character, like when he has that scene in the bar and then walks out like this fucking town, like he's disgusted with the town, but he still has this loyalty to it, which I find really interesting. And I think some of that, some of that can be tied to this. And I think anyone who's from a town from anywhere has this thought of like, well, I'm, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing more than most people from here are doing. I am thinking more broadly, I'm doing more with my life. And there's a certain amount of engagement and enjoyment you get from that, of feeling like you've kind of overcome where you're from to be something better. And by taking this kid out and giving this kid all of the advantages, it kind of robs her of that ability to know where she's from and to want to strive and to do better. And I think, so it's this really interesting dichotomy of like, I don't like where I'm from. I don't like this town, but I like what it's made me. Uh, and I think he's been he's kind of been through the fires in this town and he's come out the other side uh, for I think he would say like being a better person and making better decisions because of what he's endured being from that area. Well, there's something to being known, right, as far as like there's a comfort to uh, people know who I am and I know who they are. And Casey Affleck's character says, I know a lot of people when he's threatening uh, the Haitian drug dealer. And he's like, you know, I can, I can basically get you on reputation alone. Like you can point that gun at me, but there's a great deal of value of me just being here in this city for this long that right. I've developed friendships and relationships. And the, the drug dealer Baba would come to him and he would know 
that Patrick Kinsey would want to look into this house, that right. there's something going on and possibly there's a child that's been abducted there. And that only comes from having that sense of place. Like right. we've made fun of Jack Reacher a lot, but Jack Reacher is a different type of action hero mold where it's like the stranger who comes into town to fix things right. where he's, he's an unknown commodity and he's constantly underestimated. And then he breaks their face. Like, <laughs> because <laughs> they don't as you it. have called him the walking fist. Yes. Yeah. It's, and I think that's that's what's being robbed of this little girl is she doesn't know where she's from. She's going to miss a part of herself. And and also, like with Morgan Freeman, it's it's someone that's taking her outside of that world, kind of making that decision. He's giving up on the city, giving up on this right. town. And I think that Kinsey refuses to do so. And it's the, the brave thing with that last scene is it's kind of pointing out that it's like, whoops, you know, <laughs> yeah. Kinsey. She is a terrible mother. Like short term has made a bad decision for this girl, or he's taking on added responsibility for himself that he's going to have to remain an active participant in her life in some way or have a watchful eye. Uh, And, you know, he's willing to take that responsibility. We assume Yeah, Uh, he's to the detriment of his personal relationships with his, you know, his girlfriend and uh, certainly with the law enforcement. I'm sure like (laughs) he has not made any friends. (laughs) (laughs) It's just him and Bubba from right there's the there's the buddy comedy I want to see right there, Bubba and Patrick. It's so Amy Ryan, and Amy Madigan glowering at each other. <laughs> Amy Ryan saying hateful things about all ethnic groups and all people, and making insinuations that everyone's gay, and then just the scowl. <laughs> yeah, I'd watch that. Why not? And I'm assuming Amy Madigan will get to redo her Field of Dreams like rant to the town. Like that's right. <laughs> nice. All right. So uh, all we have left to do now is talk about the movie we're pairing this with, as we've mentioned a couple times, which is uh, American Pastoral, which is based on a phenomenal book by Philip Roth. Uh, and also, if you're interested, if you have Audible, it is a fantastic audiobook as well. Yes. And if you're a West Wing fan, you get Ron Silver as uh, as your narrator, who is amazing uh, and really does a good job with some really dense material. It's not I mean. This book is not like certainly it's not a beach read like this is you have to really That's focus on the story because I, I started reading it on a, my honeymoon uh, on the beach. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Man, that is I hope you didn't finish it on your honeymoon. Though. You'd be in a bad place by the end. That's <laughs> no, I waited. To, I got back to the great state of Kentucky to finish this. The true American comedy. pastoral. It's perfect. <laughs> perfect place. There's cows. It's good. All right. Uh, so. Uh, there's there's a lot of kind of trials and tribulation about this movie. It was originally going to be directed by Philip Noyce, uh, who apparently like just left the project, uh, decided to move on after casting was done. So Ewan McGregor, who had been cast in the lead role, just said, eh, I think I can do that. No problem. You know, Pulitzer Prize novel, uh, basically a book about an entire decade, about an entire country's state of mind. I think I can direct that. That he didn't experience. <laughs> yeah. He's not even from his place. He wasn't. Let's get the opposite yeah. of Gone Baby Gone. Let's get a complete outsider. Exactly. So uh, as Mike mentioned, I have seen this movie. So, I, But I will be talking on this episode as if I have not. I will tell you what I was thinking before I saw the movie. And then we'll save Liar. my thoughts. No, no. Liar. Because you will know because I told you all my thoughts before I saw the movie. Because I was texting you uh, as I was reading this book. Uh, about how uh, how difficult an adaptation this was going to be. But first... Yes, unfortunately, you... listeners, I have to live through this twice. That's right. You, you have to do it all the time. Uh, so what are your hopes? What are your expectations 
for this uh, for this film adaptation. I think I've seen the trailer once, which I don't even remember if there's dialogue in it. No, I, no. I seem to remember it's just music. And it's just, just music. Imagery. Yeah, yeah. It's not a good trailer. Uh, what it doesn't, you know, it does not. Brit was uh, not a fan <laughs> of that trailer. She is very <laughs> annoyed, like actively annoyed. Like I don't know anything about this. What the hell is going on? They're really relying on the the fact that it's uh you know it's this this great I guess modern novel I don't I don't know like uh, really if there's been something else that's had that sort of uh, acclaim because Phil Broth really had that career resurgence like yeah. in the mid nineties. Um, and he's the rarity that kind of got better as he got older yeah. as far as an author. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I would say the McGregor thing gave me great pause. The direction, uh, also the casting, also the casting, because... terrible casting. <laughs> Yes. Like for those who don't know, the main character is kind of the biggest high school sports star in the history of New Jersey. So you have this image of him as this like strapping, corn-fed, tall, athletic guy. And I love Ewan McGregor, but that's not him. And you brought up the fact that he's supposed to be, in a lot of ways, kind of a blank canvas for like the mm-hmm. American dream, right? And you had talked to me, and I, I couldn't get it out of my head as I was walking into the movie, at how expressive a face Ewan McGregor has, and he is the opposite of a blank slate. So questionable casting at best. Yeah, this is, uh, he's basically playing the part that, uh, of his big fish character. Yeah. Except that was supposed to be this complete fabrication, like this dad right. talking shit about himself, like how great he was at everything. Uh, and this is a guy that doesn't even seem to realize how great he is. Like right. it's everyone else who thinks he's so great, but he's just very matter of fact about like right. doing the right thing, always doing the right thing. So bragging about his skills is not the right thing. And right. so, yeah, you don't get Steve McGregor uh, with a big shit eating grin on his face, like scoring a touchdown and then swooning over Allison Lohman. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, you're hitting um, all my buttons now. I just want to go watch Big yeah, Fish. Yeah, we should just talk then. about Big Fish. Let's just talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, it's well, my expectation is uh, I'll just be perfectly honest, uh, hopefully, because uh, when you scheduled this and I, I agreed to be on it, it was a wide release. I don't know if that's still going to be the case. Uh, <laughs> it's based not on exactly getting great time. reviews so far. <laughs> so my greatest uh, expectation for it was, hey, that opens up against Inferno. I would rather see that than Inferno. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So that's about it. And I also like it. You know, I, I didn't know a whole lot about like the weather underground and all that. And so reading American pastoral, I uh, watched that uh, documentary on, on them. And it's, it's been really uh, interesting to kind of go back into that time period. I was making fun of McGregor cause he's clearly going to have an outsider's viewpoint, not only from, from age, but the fact that he was not an American in the sixties and uh, Philip Ross material is very personal. I mean, it's yeah. very much about his, it's the, like, he is the, uh, the Zuckerman character. Basically mm-hmm. he's the, the author that, uh, graduated when these characters did. This is during. This is right lockstep with his age. Love the 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 Swede character. Yeah, absolutely. So before I saw this movie, I mean, I was worried about the casting, uh, but more than anything, I was worried about the adaptation in general. I mean, there are there are a lot of moments that are just purely literary that are almost impossible to put on a screen without it looking foolish. And I think the the biggest challenge they have here with the film is that. American Pastoral, the book, has so much depth. It's not about the narrative story. That is a that's a framing device for the experience of a country, for the experience of the American dream, which may or may not be rotting at its core. Like that's really what the book is about. Uh, and to try and put that in a movie that's two hours and six minutes, I just I cannot fathom it working. Like there's there's almost and the book jumps around 
from time to time, but it doesn't do it just just to do it. It doesn't do it because it, it might be interesting. It does it in a way that you have one opinion of characters in the first third of the novel, and then it throws everything on its head by the end where you get a full picture of all of these. And I cannot imagine the film doing this. I, I walk in assuming they're just going to go you know, like in order, like just start with, start with the kid's birth or start with high school and go with the kid's birth and then move on. And I don't think that that works narratively for this story. It's going to make it shallow. I think. Do you think Dave? I think. Do you? <laughs> I think. Boy, am I looking forward to this. I'm not <laughs> saying the movie is shallow. I'm not saying that, but like just from that perspective, as I read the book, I was thinking like, how do you – you could only really do this as like – and uh, numerous people have said this. You could only really do this as a TV miniseries, like a four or five part. Each one is an hour miniseries. Like I just don't think this works uh, as a narrative film, the adaptation. I can't imagine how difficult this is to adapt. Well, it's it's told from almost – I mean, it's really one perspective. It's really the author's perspective. But when it does split and sort of allow uh, you to venture a guess about what the Swede was thinking during that time period, during the second half of the book, it's two dudes, two old men rambling in their head, <laughs> yeah. trying to piece it together. And their thoughts jump from one thing to the next. Because and that's how thoughts go. That's yeah. part of the, the charm and I guess the frustration for some people reading the book. So people who are frustrated and, you know, didn't like the book, which was critically hailed. This is the Pulitzer movie for Prize. them. Like, yeah. <laughs> so basically you're saying fan- if you're simple and you can't handle this book, <laughs> go see the movie. Well, it's weird, you know, like there's not many uh, film adaptations of well-known authors where it's like, hey, this is the one for people who don't like the way this author writes. <laughs> So fans of the author probably won't like the book and people who dislike his writing may just like this. Just a very cleaned up version of it. Just uh, here's what happened. Very yeah. straightforward. So I think we've done our job at really exciting people about this movie. Oh, yeah, go out I'm and see loving, it, folks. When does Loving come out? When do I get to uh, see certain soon. women or Moonlight or something? Good. Good. I just can't stand this. Uh, Manchester by the Sea. Another one. Like it's just everything. La La Land. Just... Yes. All of those. There's a lot of stuff I'm looking forward to. It's just I don't know when. Uh, yeah, this is when one of the, I feel like this is going to be one of the most back heavy uh, years in recent memory. Like I think the Oscars will all be movies that came out starting December 15th and on. Like, there you go. Pop culture case study listeners look forward to the episodes in January. That's right. Yeah, there'll be a lot to look forward <laughs> to. I hope. All right. Uh, so uh, one more time, tell people how they can reach you online so they can bother you with notifications. Yeah, absolutely love that. Uh, I'm on Twitter, and uh, I post a lot on Instagram, which I guess gets funneled to Twitter. Usually it's just pictures of things I'm watching for upcoming podcasts. You make people uh, like work for Don- that. Like, what is he watching? I don't <laughs> – yeah, like how? Who is Casey Affleck and Michelle Monaghan? What movie was that? Was that Goodwill Hunting? What was that? Could be. <laughs> was that Chasing Amy? Was Casey Affleck's one scene? Uh, yeah, a lot of people don't play the guessing game because I, I don't try to be that cute. I don't try to pick out a one perfect shot frame there. It's just mainly whatever comes up the fastest. Uh, the on search, Image. yeah, uh, I, with you. Sure. If I like, it's like that's attractive, and then I post on Instagram. But that's at War Machine Horse. If you're uh, if you're into that. Uh, the only interactions I get on Instagram are people asking me if I hashtag it Blu-ray, they'll ask me for the code. <laughs> like I've used the digital code. Or if it's a certain movie, you'll get, why are you watching that? That movie is a piece I of shit. I was, uh, I, because 
it, it, it outs the people who don't listen to my podcast, which is pairing off two older films centered around sometimes a very goofy theme. So like American Pastoral, uh, I'm doing an episode with Andrew from AV Film Review and The Last New Wave, and it's Dakota Fanning movies dealing with domestic terror. And so it is War of the Worlds versus Night Moves. Which, uh, War of the Worlds and Andrew. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah, you can tell this is the only guest I was ever going to have for that piece of shit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, listen for Night Moves, because I'll talk <laughs> about that for 45 minutes and then 10 minutes of War of the Worlds. Yeah, I'll get people asking, why are you watching that? And I'm like, well... Uh, that's the premise of my podcast. Like I don't. It's like the <laughs> whole thing I do. Why do you I follow me? Vertigo <laughs> or Miller's Crossing every week just because it's good. Like <laughs> I try to have a premise to my movie show, unlike most uh, every other movie podcast out there. Wow! Shots fired. <laughs> Stop covering new releases. No one gives a shit about your opinion on the true story. Movies. I don't know why everyone wants to be Ebert and Siskel. Like that's just yeah. That time is over. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if I've talked enough shit, uh, you can follow me at War Machine Horse. You can subscribe if you still want to. If not, I don't care on iTunes or Stitcher. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. So the next time you hear my voice, we will be doing a new release review for American Pastoral. If you want to connect with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. You can follow me on Twitter at PC Case Study, or you can listen to other great movie podcasts on followingfilms.com. But if you want to go the extra mile, please go to patreon.com slash pop culture case study. And there you can donate on a per episode basis and get great rewards for that donation. So until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Okay. You know what I just realized? Are you not recording? No, that I introduced the fucking wrong episode. <laughs> What'd you introduce? True grit. You... <laughs> I wasn't even listening. How's that? <laughs> it's okay. I'll just, um, I'll just uh, record like a separate intro and we'll we'll just go from here. We'll talk about content. Make sure to use this as a... <laughs> <laughs> oh, this will be on the fucking outtakes. Don't you worry about that. All right. You have to understand, I, I just... The cue is when you say my name. And it's, I just start talking. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's my turn, is it? Yeah, absolutely. A year from now, no one's even downloading this episode. This has a, like, a very short amount of time that people actually will click on it and... So what? Except for Pain and Gain, apparently. <laughs> legs, man. That thing's got legs. Pain and Gain. The Pain and Gain episode did not skip leg day. It really... It just keeps there going go. and going. See? <laughs> See? I made a fitness reference. That's all I got. It's only like, you know, 45 minutes after we stopped. <laughs> oh, this is all recorded, man. You think that's not making it in somewhere? Come on. <laughs> I just don't I don't have the faith that you'll actually go back and try to find that line. You'll just ah hell's it. 